Hi, everybody. This is Mark Yuskowitz, MMM Executive Editor, and welcome to the MMM Podcast. In this final podcast of 2019, A List Pharma Marketer Lisa Flays joins me to talk about the defining trends of the past year and which ones might be a sign of things to come in the year ahead. Lisa is Director of Multichannel Marketing and Worldwide Digital Hub Lead for Bristol Myers Squibb. And uh, it's a very exciting moment indeed, and it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast, Lisa. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm great. Excellent. And uh, I should uh, just mention that I'm flying solo today from a hosting perspective. Uh, Larry uh, Dobrow, my faithful co-host, celebrated a a wedding anniversary yesterday. So uh, happy 10 years to you, Larry. Uh, Many more to come. And uh, also, I should mention how uh, we came to have uh, Lisa on the podcast. Uh, For my weekly column on December 19th, I did a little uh, crowdsourcing project where I asked six of the smartest people I know in healthcare marketing to share the marketing milestones that that came to define 2019. And uh, Lisa was kind enough to share her thoughts on that. And so we invited her to come on and we're uh, very grateful to have her here. So in a moment, uh, we'll get to her. Um, Just a couple of quick housekeeping items. Um, uh, There's other best of content on the website now. Uh, Speaking of that, uh, like Larry's third M, the best of media, healthcare media the past year. Allison Kansky's, uh, you know, highlights of pharma uh, healthcare policy of the past year, uh, and uh, Chops um, uh, has, has their installment uh, of uh, you know things to look for in the year ahead is is, is available as well. Um, and uh, look for our CES preview piece going up uh, very shortly. Uh, CES obviously taking place uh, what is the first or second week of January, uh, so that CES preview piece will be going up soon. And I will be at the J. PM uh, conference uh, in January. So if you're going to be there, feel free to reach out. We'd love to uh, set up a meeting. Uh, so the hour is early, and so let's crack on, shall we? And I just want to point out that Lisa's opinions are her own and not those of her company. Uh, number one, first question for you, Lisa. Um, the Drug Pricing Transparency Initiative, um, you know, that was uh, something that uh, you flagged, you know, as kind of a defining moment of 2019 for you as a healthcare marketer. Why was this uh, such a major challenge for marketers this past year? Well, the Pricing Transparency Initiative is something that the whole industry took very seriously. And one of the reasons it was a challenge is is because it was a bit unclear what the requirements might be. And Pharma, as the trade organization, did try to get in front of being told what to do and put together some voluntary guidance for the industry. So uh, everybody was sort of watching to see what everybody else would do because nobody really loves being first mover when it comes to these new initiatives for the industry. Um, We always strive to do what is best for patients and deliver information that is relevant and meaningful to them, especially after mid-April when the requirement came into effect, um, we did see that each company sort of handled it differently. Um, And sometimes even within a company from brand to brand, it might have been handled a bit inconsistently. So this is still an ongoing discussion. There's still legislature in play. Um, But we at least embrace the climate around this pricing transparency to develop even more sophisticated and more enhanced ways to ensure patients have access to our medicines and to demonstrate the value of our medicines to payers 
and even to enable healthcare professionals to treat patients with the best clinical choice without barriers, because at the end of the day, that's certainly what we want. We want the right patient to get on the right drug. And, and pricing transparency adds to the complexity of that conversation with the physician. It's a very complex issue. So we are fully behind being transparent in a way that provides the information that leads to the best healthcare decision. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned, you know, that uh, each company kind of handled it differently. Um, uh, Eli Lilly and Johnson Johnson kind of took the lead on on pharma's new guidelines uh, for DTC ads, um, and uh, you know there there was uh, some um, you know differences in, in the way different companies approached it. Uh, but I'm intrigued by by the way you described it that we we embraced the climate. You know we we embraced that. Um, how how how, could, how did that um, affect? the marketers on the job reality. Can you kind of talk about that, you know, the impact that it had on, on marketers on the ground? It just made us go back and think about our communications, you know, and make sure that we weren't just doing it the way we always did it. We are committed to um, access to our medications. And, you know, as an industry, we look at a lot of different alternative ways to help make sure that patients can afford their medications. Uh, and I think it just gave us an opportunity to scrutinize those programs even more closely and making sure that we were doing everything that we could. Sure. And, uh, you know, uh, the rumor has it that uh, the Trump plan to, you know, require um, uh, pricing in DTC ads is, is, is we, we could see that surface again in, in the new year. Uh, so that could be a sign of things to come. Is that something that you're, you're looking out for? Yes, we're definitely looking out for it. There's a lot of legislation around drug pricing sort of floating in the air right now. Um, as we approach an election year, it usually comes up frequently, uh, you know, and the pharma industry is criticized quite a bit for the pricing of medications. So, you know, we just want to make sure that we help patients get connected to the more than 900 programs offered by biopharmaceutical companies. Um, you know, there is a, a robust offering of patient assistance programs out there. And again, at the end of the day, I think that's really what it's all about for us is helping patients get on the right medicines for them. Sure, sure. Okay, well, speaking of policy, uh, we're approaching an election year and uh, certainly a lot of noise around that. Do you expect the election vacuum to suck up most of the energy in Washington, or are, you, are there specific policy measures that will be a factor? Well, again, election years are, are always years when pharma is in the hot seat even more than usual, right? Um, every candidate campaigns on a platform of health care reform in one way or another. Drug pricing will certainly be called out repeatedly. The Affordable Care Act is still under attack. Uh, reimportation might be a factor. Payer reform might finally make it to the forefront. I mean, this is a, a sort of a tough one to predict. Uh, but one thing for sure, there'll there'll be no shortage of opportunities to defend the pricing model in the U.S. Um, you know, at Christmas when Uncle Joe asked me once again why his drugs are so expensive, I will explain it again. Um, you know, the current <laughs> drug pricing legislation being debated in the House is uh, lower drugs. Drug Cost Now Act, and I, you know, this is not necessarily a good way to address the issue. The the bill will would allow the federal government unprecedented authority to set prices for medicines in public and private markets, 
based on prices from other countries. And if this is enacted, the proposal would um, really make the market-based system that has made the U.S. that has made the U.S. the global leader in developing innovative, life-saving treatments and cures. Uh, it would make it hard for that system to work. So BMS and other companies support a variety of alternative solutions to improve the system so that it works better for patients. Right. And I just saw, you know, um, uh, there was an item, I think it's CNBC this week, uh, talking about the um, uh, measure to allow importation of drugs from Canada. And, uh, you know, the the writer quipped that, um, you know, putting the medicines on a dog sled, you know, would 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 be quicker than actually, you know, being able to uh, reimport them through formal channels. Um, it's it's not something that uh, uh, the market, at least, is taking very seriously, considering um, uh, the stock stock market was up this week in terms of the, you know, the S&P uh, life science index. Um, but, uh, you know, pe- people don't seem to be putting that much stock, you know, in, in some of those measures. Um, but again, as, as you say, um, you know, the legislation is, is still in play and it's something that uh, industry is keeping an eye on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I hadn't read that, but that's sort of funny, the, the slay comment. Uh, and I, I think, again, it's a safety issue, right? Medicines that are advertised as from Canada often are not from Canada and may be dangerous counterfeits. So law enforcement agencies have repeatedly warned that import importation schemes could actually worsen the opioid crisis, for example, and and jeopardize public safety. So, you know, one way to help guarantee the safety of drugs coming from other countries, or I should say that there is really no way to guarantee the safety of drugs coming from other countries. Um, But one way to guarantee, help guarantee the safety here is, you know, the United States FDA regulated uh, the closed track and trace system does designed to monitor the distribution of legitimate medicines. Hmm. Yeah, um, but that is always a concern is, is the safety and, you know, wanting to maintain the purity uh, of, of product for sure. Um, how about we skip, skip gears, shift gears uh, for, for a moment and talk a little bit about um, social media. Um, that's a channel, um, you know, if I could put it that way, that some would say has not quite reached its potential within pharma. Um, and, um, we saw the rise and fall of, um, social media centers of excellence at a few pharma companies, uh, the past year or so. And, uh, just wanted to ask you what was fundamentally flawed, you know, if you agree with that premise, uh, about the center of excellence or COE approach in this case, in terms of getting, you know, marketers more fluent, more comfortable with using social media as a channel uh, in, in, in pharma marketing. Obviously, all of the channel-relevant studies in the world will tell you that that's where pharma needs to be, but but it's uh, arguably not really where it needs to be. Yeah, I think I think it's always funny to watch the, uh, the full cycle, the full cycle of COEs across the industry. Um, I mean, I, I do think that pharma is still putting the utmost importance on social. We're no longer making the argument that social is, you know, social is the right place for us to be. I think for the most part, we've bought into that and agree that social is the right place to be. But with COEs, they, they just come and go all the time, right? Like over my career, I've seen centralized services built around uh, consumer communications as a discipline, <clears throat> what was once called e-marketing, um, you know, digital and multi-channel is where I personally live now in sort of a hub service organization 
Uh, I've seen social, or excuse me, search and media COEs, social COEs, uh, video, EHR COEs, innovation centers. I mean, you name it. Um, it seems that there's, you know, there's always the next emerging channel technology or capability that a company wants to put focused and expert attention on. Um, and then over time, as those capabilities evolve from, you know, where you see only pockets of excellence here and there within an organization, within an organization to a place where it's more integrated into the everyday, the responsibility for that will move back into the brand. Um, but as long as that company wants to leverage whatever the capability is as a competitive advantage to differentiate itself in the market and to drive business impact, then a COE, a COE may be warranted. Do you think there's one approach uh, that, that's better than the other in terms of, you know, like setting up a COE and saying, um, OK, here's the people that have the expertise in this area. Um, people come and get it versus not having it um, and, you know, empowering people in a way that gives them the um, training and the technology um, and the empowerment to do it. Um, do, do you think that there's one right way? And, and did, did people kind of, do, do people kind of feel a little bit intimidated by a COE where they feel like, you know, the COE is going to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, have a kind of more of a, a paternalistic kind of a, approach rather than uh, foster the diffusion of that expertise throughout the company or the marketing staff? Uh, you know, I really don't think there's one right way, right? I've seen it work both ways. And I mean, it really, the paternalistic perception is, is going to be based on that company's culture, right? So if it's set up as, uh, you know, a partnership, then, hope, you know, then hopefully it wouldn't be looked at as paternalistic. One last question on the social media point. Is there a chat, is there a, a platform, you know, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, et cetera, that you uh, foresee the most um, growth in from a farmer's perspective in the coming year? Uh, probably... That's a good question, Mark. I would say probably we'll see more in Instagram as it stays tied to Facebook. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, sure. Cer certainly um, see, see that from where I'm sitting as well, just from an observer, observer's point of view. Okay, let's move on to uh, another question. Um, in, in your um, uh, observations from the past year, uh, and that piece, you know, again, is, is, is on the site now. Everybody can read that. Um, to, to not only read Lisa's uh, astute observations of marketing milestones from the year that passed, but uh, those of, of other uh, healthcare marketers like Joe Shields and Zoe Dunn, uh, Brian Fox, uh, and Tom Dudnick, um, and Sharon Callahan. Um, we saw privacy concerns snowball this past year. You know, that was something that you had uh, flagged. I think Zoe had flagged that as well. And we're in a post-GDPR uh, world now. Um, and... Um, so the question is, how does that change things for digital marketers? And can you give me your take on the shift um, to, um, you know, how marketers can um, operate, you know, while operating in this highly regulated area, which now is, is, is even more, you know, highly scrutinized to kind of mitigate some of these concerns? Yeah, absolutely. In the article, I, I coined 2019 as, you know, that it would be known as the year of the privacy challenges. And I certainly do believe that um, digital marketers especially really had to pay the most attention, I think, to these privacy concerns because we had to reevaluate our method of audience identification, targeting, and tracking. 
Um, and of course, you know, you mentioned GDPR. The most buzz was around this and the CCPA as a sign of things to come as California sort of leads the way. So in a, in a post-GDPR climate, um, consumers are, you know, more wary, right? They won't allow marketers to continue to suck in their data if they don't start to see real value in exchange for providing that personal data about them. <clears throat> it's funny because the research shows that um, perhaps the greatest sort of ongoing mystery of personalization is the general insistence that consumers expect personalization or that personalization is is table stakes for marketers. Um, you know, we sort of take it as a given that consumers prefer targeted, targeted and relevant communications and personalized experiences. But, uh, you know, what the research shows is that consumers don't actually feel that this is their experience, that they're not necessarily getting personalized experiences. And so they're skeptic about the use of their personal data and the value that it provides. So there are potential regulatory issues, but there are consumer preferences to keep in mind. You know, after all, personalization is supposed to make the customer's experiences better. And most internet users don't want their personal information being used for ad targeting. Um, consumer education and how digital ad targeting works is it's still pretty iffy. They're not completely sophisticated in it, but the more the consumers learn, the less they like it, right? So while relevant ads may be better than irrelevant ads, um, the typical internet user doesn't really think that relevance is worth handing over their personal data for um, in case it, it's you know misused. Um, so what we're doing in the in the pharma space really is the pendulum swinging back to considering more contextually targeted type advertising. So it's also you know, it's coming around to the issue of, of context, but it's also coming around in a shift with how we're um, making more use of first-party data. Um, given the regulatory environment, we sort of trust first-party data a little bit more. And while there, of course, are challenges associated with first-party data, you know, we, we all are trying to get up to speed on, on how best to leverage data. Um, once that data is in an actionable form, it, it does tend to be more valuable. So your first party data and the segments that you've created out of your first party data are always going to you know, outperform what you're able to do with a third party data set. Uh, so by prioritizing sort of contextually relevance, contextual relevance and by prioritizing first data, first party data collection, I think marketers are going to be in a much better position to enhance the customer experience and to make it more effective. How does uh, first-party data kind of get around the rel the um, reluctance of uh, the typical internet user to hand over their personal data for pro processing and potential misuse? It's just that I, I'm sort of making a leap here that if we have first-party data, it's because it's permission-based, right? Because mm -hmm. we had um, someone engage with us and it wasn't sold to us by a different party, you know, where they hadn't engaged with our brand. Sure, sure. And can you give just a quick sort of hypothetical example of like a first party data set? Well, for example, if somebody enrolled or registered into uh, a CRM program and we have specific information that they shared with us directly. Okay, okay, right. Okay. Yeah, there's this, you know, conundrum as, as you frame it, um, you know, People don't want to, you know, have their personal information used, um, 
uh, th- this way, but yet they they value um, the relevance of, of of relevant advertising. You know, so um, interesting to hear how uh, industry is navigating that. Um, uh, one other question um, on sort of challenges that uh, industry may be grappling with. Uh, what, what other kind of um, uh, pitfalls or, or challenges uh, kind of uh, were were uh, were you you know handling uh, in the past year? So I wouldn't exactly call it a challenge, but the explosion of voice has has been on my radar this whole year in in the sense that we're trying to figure out kind of the right place to play um, and to not get behind the eight ball, right? Because pharma is, is usually behind mainstream business when it comes to leveraging new marketing techniques and new marketing channels. No one's ever accused this industry of being on the forefront pioneering marketing techniques. Um, so voice is, mm-hmm. is an immediate opportunity and we're looking at it from, from search to skills to, to audio streams on voice controlled devices and more. So over time, I expect we'll see this evolve, you know, much like we've seen other media channels in the past from this sort of interruptive messaging platform to more permission-based engagements that, that fit seamlessly into our, our daily routines. Uh, one of the things that I love about the importance of voice for digital marketers is that it continues to reinforce, really even after all these years, the, the critical role that SEO can play mm-hmm. in helping consumers find your information. Um, you know, I, I always try to remind people, it continues to be true, that if you, even if you publish the best information out there, if it's not discoverable, it's worthless, right? So I'm looking forward to the day that voice as a channel is, is integrated into each of our standard marketing tactics. And, you know, we're including voice in search, web, advertising, social, and CRM. Yeah, that, that integration will, will be interesting. Um, would you say that, you know, when you, when you look across, uh, at, at your colleagues, uh, that they are already kind of, um, thinking about integrating it within the media plan or is that, you know, where, where are we with, with that, you know, circa the end of 2019 in terms of voice being integrated in the overall media plan? Um, I mean, my point of view at this point is that no one's the expert, you know, no one's great at it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I had also asked everybody to share um, what personalities, you know, companies or brands uh, stood out the past year for their marketing prowess or their performance or their media savvy, you know, or all the above. And I know you had flagged ZDog MD and Dr. Eric Topol, um, who obviously are two very influential people on the uh, professional, uh, amongst the professional set. Um, why did you like them? Why, do you, why did you name them? <laughs> I, I love them both. I follow them religiously. I, you know, I love, I love that it, you guys bring them up as influencers as well. Uh, Dr. Topol has been, you know, evangelizing the use of digital as a tool for medical for years and years. Um, so he's been someone that I've looked to um, over time at this point. Uh, I'm not sure that they are mainstream, uh, you know, with the general public, but you know, the data around patient influencers is getting stronger and stronger each year. Just ask the team at We Go Health. They've been ahead of the curve on that for years. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do have to give props to Z-Dog MD because he is getting to be more, I think, in the public eye. Uh, maybe he's getting more popular as he's been doing more public appearances and more speaking engagements. But, you know, he, he's billed as health, healthcare's only unfiltered voice 
Um, he's just so raw and authentic, and that's one of the reasons why I love him. And he offers lessons for patients, for policymakers, and for other physicians alike. Um, and he does it in a way that's entertaining, that's transparent, authentic. Um, you know, and he just tackles the toughest healthcare topics. And he offers an educated perspective with empathy for the patient and for the provider. And I mean, it's everything from EMRs to readmissions, uh, CPR to self exams, technology and healthcare, controversy and vaccines. I mean, whatever it is, D Dog MD has a point of view. Um, and if you haven't watched his library of material, you really owe it to yourself to set aside at least an hour because you'll get sucked into it, right? You'll watch the first three minute video, and before you know it, you'll watch 20 more. Like, they're just that good. Absolutely, yeah. And as you mentioned, MMNM did, uh, you know, name him an influencer on our top 50 healthcare influencers lists, which we published back in November. And we also did a cover story on Z-Dog uh, over the summer. Uh, so you can catch both of those on, on our site. And uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you're in pharma marketing, it's essential uh, to, you know, know obviously who are the KOLs, uh, but also this new breed of KOL who is very influential in the, in the digital sphere. Uh, and, you know, Kevin, Kevin Foe, Kevin MD, uh, and, and now this, this new um, wave of, of influential uh, physicians uh, that are, you know, taking to YouTube um, is just really amazing to see. And uh, agree with you 100% uh, there on those two picks. Dr. Eric Topol as well, you know, his, uh, if you follow his Twitter feed, you know, you know what I mean. He's just uh, really on top of, of the research and, and, you know, in terms of um, data points that really uh, uh, are um, important in, in the public health sphere um, and, and beyond. So, um, okay, so uh, just to switch gears one more time, um, I had thought that, you know, since we're focusing so much uh, on the year that was, uh, you know, it wouldn't be uh, much of a, of a podcast if we didn't talk about the year ahead. Uh, but to do that, I felt we, uh, we would do that in our lightning round. Uh, so what I'm going to do, Lisa, is ask you uh, five um, – I'm going to give you five statements uh, one at a time. And you're going to tell me uh, whether you agree or disagree with that statement. And then give me a one-sentence explanation of why you think this way. Uh, and these are all going to be sort of phrased in the form of predictions for 2020. Does that sound good? <laughs> you don't have much choice, so uh, okay. Okay, first statement here: uh, privacy concerns will hold back the proliferation of voice tech in healthcare. Disagrees. Privacy concerns won't keep us from the baby steps, right? Voice search is the low-hanging fruit, um, and for more complex ways of using voice as a channel, it will be the usual barriers within a large company of standing up a new capability that slow us down before the policy around privacy will slow us down. All right. Next one. Pharmacy, excuse me, pharma will figure out how to get around do not call vis-a-vis HCP access. Disagree. Um, <laughs> there's no getting around do not call, right? They're just getting good at omni-channel marketing so that there's an ecosystem built around a customer. Um, this needs to start with breaking down data silos, and we're still challenged in this regard. All right. Uh, next one. Uh, pharma use cases for AI will move beyond R&D and finding patients for clinical trials into other areas. Agree, uh, because we're already there. Right across the industry, there are a lot of, a lot of examples of uh, chatbots, and virtual assistant features available for our in-market brands 
Um, and those are great examples of AI in use. That is true. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's several. I'll give you that. Um, and I'm going to be talking with some people from the conversational AI uh, field in the new year, you know, to, to kind of uh, gauge just how, you know, um, how, how, how much they're proliferating. So, um, you know, but, but I'll give you that one. Okay. Uh, next one. <laughs> Amazon will do something that directly competes with pharma or PBMs in the year ahead. Agree. Um, Amazon will make a big play in healthcare delivery. Um, so it's questionable. It's questionable to me whether 2020 will be the year that it comes to fruition. Yes, and they've, they've been kind of making some significant moves. Obviously, the buying of PillPack uh, and you know the, the licensing in in, in 50 states, um, and uh, and then the, the purchase of Health Navigator uh, this this past season, uh, which which makes the technology powering chatbots. To speak speaking of chatbots and symptom checkers, uh, so. I think that they're going to kind of leverage the health navigator uh, by to um, put out some uh, chatbots uh, that are consumer facing uh, in the healthcare area. We, we've seen a number of them, as you mentioned, for you know that are HCP facing. Some of them on the consumer side, but I think we, we may see, might see a, a move in that area from Amazon. Okay, and the final one here. Uh, I know you're um, uh, you'll like this one. The Sixers will go to the NBA Finals, and Joel Embiid will win MVP. <laughs> Agree. I have to. All right. Agree. I'm, I, I'm a Philly girl. I have to agree with that one. Okay. So I was three for two on the uh, three for five on that <laughs> on that lightning round. So uh, I'm, I'm glad. Okay. Well, um, you know, thank you so much for uh, you know coming on the podcast. I know it was a, it was early, and but for doing such a great job. Thanks, Lisa. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. It was a great, uh, great fun, great opportunity. Thank you. Sure. Of course. And I'm sure we'll speak with you again in the new year. Well, that's it, you know, for this installment of the MMM podcast. Um, I want to thank our producer, Christy Mateo. I want to thank Lisa again. Um, and uh, to everybody out there listening, a happy and prosperous new year to you all and your families. And we'll see you in 2020. Take care, everybody.